welcome to another episode of the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rabin, and in this episode, I'm going to be answering another question, which will get me to dive into a bit of, well, something resembling political philosophy. I was asked this question on Twitter by the pseudonymous Flaker of Flints and managed to provide only a very weak answer there, thanks to the limits of the platform. So I'm going to get into a more robust answer here. Some of this answer may feel to you like one long segue, but hopefully by the end of it, you'll have some sense of why I have taken the scenic route. So here is the question. I'm reading Camus' The Plague, and I'm at the point where fighting and grieving have become routine. They still track the numbers of deaths, but nobody thinks about what they mean. The US is at this point with COVID. Where do we go from here? My original response to this was to say that the question of where to go from here is difficult to answer because of how the focus on the pandemic has been consumed by various political fires. Since my original series on the plague, we have seen an astonishing explosion of political tensions in the US. So here as best as I can as an outsider to that situation, I'm going to deal with what I see as a rather disturbing trend in US politics, which is that it has become structured along the lines of a viral slash antiviral dichotomy. At least this is what it looks like if reports on mass media and outbursts on social media are anything to go by. This is to say, it is in some ways entirely unsurprising that the spreading and curbing of a literal virus has given way to a viral politics, or seemed to, because as you will see, I don't think this is actually a new thing. At the unconscious level, these things are structured identically. The polarization of left and right in the US has become increasingly rivalrous, to the point that politics is not just about which stance one takes on any issue, but how that stance is not what the other side agrees with. Um, How does anyone figure out where to go from here if the predominant structure of political order has to do with an essentially deconstructive move that dictates that we should just get away from here? I will explain some of this as we go along. Anyone who is vaguely sensible knows, for example, that it is a good idea to get away from racialism and racism, which have been hot topics for a while, but have heated up uh, in the wake of George Floyd's death. But why are so few trying to articulate a genuine non-racialism? So that's, that's this thing of getting away from a place, but not having a very clear sense of what the target is, which I'll get to more on later. It is easier these days to know which negative value or ideology to avoid than to know which positive value to pursue. I like that the question I've been asked is framed along the lines of meaning, which people are struggling to figure out in the midst of the pandemic. So much is going on and we have unbelievable access to information, data, to media, so we know what is happening, more or less, but not necessarily what it means. Arguably, this is an age of a crisis of meaning. The trouble is perpetually with coherence, with things holding together, with finding stability when everything is or seems to be in a constant flux. The trend towards polarization in our time, as I see it, is a perpetual reaction to this lack of certainty and coherence. So now what happens when you throw a virus, a literal pandemic, into the mix 
of what is already a meaning crisis. I can't go into everything. I've been thinking about this, obviously, but I'm going to try and explain some of it by sketching how the virus functions as a symbol, a symbol being an implicit way of structuring consciousness. I want to use three examples of how this plays out. First, looking at Hitler's use of epidemiological metaphors, then looking at those same metaphors in the writings of Jacques Derrida, and finally looking at how social media itself has a viral structure. As you will see soon enough, a virus makes for a terrible structuring principle, but that hasn't stopped people from using it. Once I've explained all of this, I can then offer a very brief answer to the question of where we should go from here. And this will involve, in some sense, trying to find a sense of order that does not involve merely oscillating from viral to antiviral politics. In other words, we need a different structuring principle, a non-viral structuring principle. When you look at history, you will notice a persistent association between disease and xenophobia and or othering, where disease causes a fear of the foreigner. As psychological research into disgust teaches us, when any given situation is terrible, people immediately look for the supposed original source of contamination. Since abstract and impersonal things like viruses are difficult to conceptualize, and since people take their own lives personally, the trend is then actually to blame people. It is not enough for many people, for example, to state that a virus originates from a particular country. Instead, they want to say that it must have necessarily been caused deliberately by those people. Psychologically speaking, this is not a question of what is true or not. Let's say, for example, people in China really did engineer the coronavirus. When seeking to blame others, which is this sort of trend when there is some form of contamination, the question of this being true or not is not generally going to be regarded as important. What people will find important is just that they find someone to blame. And history shows this. Let's look at post-World War I Germany as an example. Germany was economically impoverished and psychologically diminished. It was thrown into its own crisis of meaning. A man named Adolf Hitler started to look for scapegoats. As both Kenneth Burke and René Girard have suggested, scapegoating can be understood as an attempt at meaning-making. And it is quite amazing how often that meaning-making system is bound up in trying to fight some sort of plague. It is an attempt to bring coherence to an otherwise chaotic world. What did Hitler do? Well, he blamed the Jews. Hitler was not alone in this, but he was one of the more vocal and violent anti-Semites. Hitler states outright in his 1925 book Mein Kampf that to find a cure for disease, the disease must be properly diagnosed. And he goes on to use various epidemiological metaphors like virus, social disease, political disease, germs, outbreak, contamination, vermin, parasite, and the like, to describe what sort of diseased state Germany was in. In other words, Hitler used epidemiological language to structure his own political vision. In Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote the following, It is obvious that the external symptoms of any disease can be more readily detected than its internal causes. For these symptoms strike the eye more easily. This is also the reason why so many people recognize only external effects and mistake them for causes. 
Indeed, they will sometimes try to deny the existence of such causes. Obviously, it's a very short quotation, but I'm pulling it out of, out of context just to show how sneaky Hitler was as a rhetorician. He claimed more or less that while it may seem like there are other causes at play that led Germany to its terrible state, the real reason was something else, something not obvious. He actually separates symptoms from causes, which means that he can offer different so-called causes to explain the symptoms. This rhetorical trick allows him to point fingers at anyone he wants to because he doesn't have to prove his claims. So in Hitler's case, the link between a metaphorical contaminant or disease and a group of people becomes very explicit. But in our day, the same logic plays out, especially in the fact that electronic media itself is structured along the lines of the viral, as I will get to soon enough. We know what the result of Hitler's thinking was, namely a very strong commitment by Nazi Germany to commit genocide. They wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. So genocide was regarded as a kind of immunology, a kind of antiviral politics, a politics structured entirely around getting rid of the so-called contaminant, getting rid of the so-called virus. Tragically, during the time of the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, the plague got strongly connected with the Jews and resulted in their persecution then too. This antiviral politics functions similarly to the cytokine storms that have been literally caused by COVID. The attack on the so-called virus is so strong and so over-assertive that it in fact destroys the body itself. Some people might say that perhaps there is a place for something like an antiviral politics where, for instance, you tear down statues and destroy them uh, because that, that's a way of getting rid of a contaminant. But ultimately, the thing attacked is the political social body itself. Remember, back to Germany, that the Jews were part of German society. They were Germans. And remember, too, that Hitler's war was also against the aged and the infirm. In fact, Hitler's epidemiological politics involved treating everything other as a virus, which in essence invited further attack on the social political body. Carl Jung famously claimed that when the intention of something is difficult to locate, we should look at the results of that something and infer the intention. In a way, we could say Hitler's political intention was not, despite what he consciously said, to win. His aim was to lose. Everything he did, everything resulting from his epidemiological politics, ensured that Germany would end up in an even worse state than when it started. This is always the case with viral politics. So, to cut a very complicated story short, Hitler instigated World War II, which caused such devastation that in a way the world has yet to recover from it. Sadly, if understandably, the historical pendulum started to swing to a dramatic opposite position. If Hitler's politics was antiviral, it would result in a viral politics. If Hitler's politics was fascist, the natural reaction to it as we are now seeing, would be anti-fascist. It is only in recent times that anti-fascism has gained such prominence, but the pendulum swing starts back in the years following World War II. 
One attempt to get away from Hitlerite xenophobic totalitarianism can be found in the work of a certain philosopher of Jewish heritage named Jacques Derrida. Derrida does an interesting and surprising thing with the same epidemiological metaphors that Hitler used. Instead of reacting against those metaphors, though, Derrida takes the image of the virus positively, to the point that he suggests it as the central symbol for understanding what his philosophy of deconstruction is about. It is difficult to give a nutshell version of what deconstruction is, because at least one of the purposes of deconstruction is to disrupt anything that claims to have a stable meaning and ontology. Usually deconstruction is understood as a method of analyzing texts based on the idea that language is inherently unstable and shifting, and that the reader rather than the author is central in determining meaning. The presumption of deconstruction is that an order already exists in some or another form which by being too sure of itself is bound to get too rigid and hegemonic. It is bound to end up in fascism which must be avoided at all costs. So deconstruction aims to liberate the dear reader or interpreter from regimes of certainty. What is worrying here is that certainty itself is deemed the enemy, not certainty of error. Even certainty of truth will get lost in the viral intentions of deconstruction. Now, because deconstruction always works with a given text, something already presenting itself as certain, it is entirely parasitic. Deconstruction doesn't want us to arrive at an ontology or a picture of what is real, which is why Derrida himself claimed that all sentences of the type deconstruction is X or deconstruction is not X a priori miss the point, which is to say that they are at least false. One of the principal things in deconstruction is the delimiting of ontology and, above all, of the third-person present indicative S is P. The most obvious problem with this is that while it diminishes what is wrong, it does so without having an alternative to point to. The deconstructionist can't even be certain of what is right. He can only be certain of what he is moving away from. This is something, by the way, that is brilliantly explored in a novel called Death Comes to the Deconstructionist by Daniel Taylor. I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful read. Even if we can't understand what deconstruction is, at least with any certainty, we can at the very least understand what it does. It dismantles structures, it undermines logical statements, it calls into question and doubts traditional beliefs. It casts aspersions on any observations we have about what is going on. It is therefore not for no reason that deconstruction has been called nihilistic. Even if the deconstructionist claims that he is merely interpreting a text, that is, merely analyzing and commenting on a text, the thing that we should not forget is that interpretation always involves an intention. If you look for devils behind every bush, you will find them. As I suggested, Derrida himself called deconstruction a virus. A virus is inert dead code that replicates itself by using a host. The virus doesn't have agency, really, but metaphorically speaking, we could say that the virus's aim is to contaminate an unsuspecting host to force that host's internal machinery to make copies of the virus. And this causes many of these copies of the virus to spread and then contaminate new hosts. And on it goes. The virus serves itself 
and not the host. And this is a very vital point if we want to understand what viral politics is like. It is not serving people, it is serving itself. Now, you may think that I'm exaggerating, but I need to point out that Derrida wanted deconstruction to function in this way, to infect the thinking of people, to disrupt communication. In a somewhat uncharacteristically clear statement, Derrida states his aim. All I have done is dominated by the thought of a virus, what could be called a parasitology, a virology, the virus being many things. The virus is in part a parasite that destroys, that introduces disorder into communication. Even from the biological standpoint, this is what happens with the virus. It derails a mechanism of the communicational type. It's coding and decoding. It is neither alive nor dead. This is all that I have done since I began writing. That's quite an astonishing statement from Derrida. So what does deconstruction do? To get a feel for this, as Derrida himself suggests, it helps to look at what a virus does. A virus is a small, encoded piece of information, a list of instructions to follow or copy. Within a host, a virus disrupts a given order, whether partially or completely. It denies the given structure its own coherence and sometimes its own life. The purpose of the virus is decidedly not to re-establish order, but to merely continue its disruptions and to replicate its own code. Most significantly, as Derrida notes, a virus attacks communication, the one thing that can bridge different aspects of reality, the one thing that can create meaning and can build the world. Think of what a computer virus will do. It attacks the very thing that would seek to re-establish order. It erases and breaks down common ways of thinking and finding meaning. For the record, I am reluctant in general to claim that a philosopher who barely anyone can understand would have had such a profound influence on our time, and for this reason I see Derrida more as a symptom and interpreter of a general pattern of viral politics that was emerging after World War II. Still, with Derrida we can see the meaning of any kind of virology or parasitology or societal epidemiologification rather clearly. One way to look at Derrida's gesture is that it is the opposite of Hitler's. It seems so obviously so. I mean, it's a, it's a resistance of the fascism of Hitler. But another way to see it is that it does emulate Hitler's original antiviral politics in a way. Hitler pointed fingers at the Jewish people and called them a virus. Derrida pointed fingers at himself and said more or less, why, yes, I am a virus. Or maybe, well, if you want a virus, I will give you one. The key thing I want to point out is that the virus remains the structuring principle, whether considered negatively or positively. And we have now, for good or ill, been able to see what happens when the structuring principle gets embodied in a literal pandemic. Remember that for years before this, especially post 9-11, we have had artists and filmmakers explore how this viral structure functions, in zombie cinema especially, but even in films like Contagion. Some creative people have understood that this viral structure has been present for a long time. The fact that the current pandemic has been seized to further other political ends shouldn't surprise us, since the entire liberalist political field has been structured virally for ages. 
This viral structure reflects the Chestertonian insight that the human race, according to religion, fell once and in falling gained knowledge of good and evil. Now we have fallen a second time and only the knowledge of evil remains. A virology or viral politics knows what sickness looks like. At least it spends an awful lot of time pointing at sickness, but it doesn't ask nearly enough what it means to be healthy. I spoke a bit about this in my plague episode on health. If we are too concerned with the dialectic of sickness and cure, we won't ask the question of who is sick and who is the cure for. Viral politics knows that the body is breaking down, but because it is wedded to the virus itself, it cannot figure out what it really means to be whole and healthy. Well, now, this viral logic has been built into electronic and social media. This needs a much larger discussion than what I can offer here, but I just want to highlight the importance of understanding how social media is structured around incentivizing self-interest for the sake of profiteering. I touched on this a little bit in my last episode. To do this effectively, it has to prioritize miscommunication over communication, or at least a kind of communication that resists being challenged. As Zizek has pointed out, an ideology has won the moment when arguments against it become arguments supporting it. I would go a step further and say ideology has won when it cannot even hear critique. I think this is a pervasive problem across the political spectrum, although I do think that leftists are in the greatest danger of falling into this ideological trap because of two very simple ideological gestures that they are uh, manifesting. The one is Kafka trapping and the other one is cancel culture. I'm not going to go into these here though. Because of social media echo chambers, a shared understanding of reality is becoming harder and harder to arrive at. I mentioned that viruses disrupt communication, right? So, now what? Where do we go from here? I have two suggestions which are far from adequate and far from complete, but I mention them because they seem to me to be at the heart of what is neglected in our time. At the heart, that is, of why people oscillate between viral and antiviral politics. My first suggestion is that people need to learn to deal with disappointment. And the second is that people need to learn to forgive. Why do we need to deal with disappointment? Well, one thing I've noticed in looking at both Hitler and Derrida as symbols of different attempts at a viral politics is that both did not handle disappointment well. Hitler's disappointment is more aggressive and violent, and Derrida's is, you could say, kinder and more open to humor. Hitler runs from disappointment into false certainty and obviously into violence. Derrida absorbs it to such a degree that justice and truth become always just out of reach. Hitler projects his disappointment onto the other, onto the Jewish other in this case. Derrida absorbs and internalizes that disappointment. He interjects it and radicalizes uncertainty, almost as a way to avoid being further disappointed when proven wrong later. Both strategies are attempts to deal with disappointment by not dealing with it. Both are merely reactive to what they perceive, and we see this playing out in so many ways in the US right now. The left is disappointed with the right and vice versa, and everyone is disappointed with themselves, and everyone is disappointed with the entire political system. But instead of grieving their losses, a lot of people are just lashing out. 
what has manifested as aggression is at root sadness. And if people cannot admit their sadness, they cannot even arrive at the thing we all need the most in this turbulent time, which is forgiveness, which is my second recommendation. Hannah Arendt said, although I may be paraphrasing here, that Jesus discovered the significance of forgiveness in the political and social realm, and I think she is right. In many ways, we have become caught up in a way of seeing history as a pendulum, which is to say that everything operates somewhat along the lines of Hegel's dialectic, a constant oscillation between moments of negation and affirmation. What this pendulum view of history does is it renders all human beings absolutely determined by the pendulum. Every action must have an equal opposite reaction. Every fascism must have an equal opposite anti-fascism. This is merely political suicide. In Mark Ansbach's amazing book, Vengeance in Reverse, he talks about how vengeance is a kind of vicarious suicide. If I take revenge on someone else, the law of revenge will ensure that that vengeance will be returned. The only way out of this endless cycle of violence, this endless repetitive and quite boring vengefulness, is forgiveness. Forgiveness says that I do not have to merely react to history, to what has happened. Forgiveness says that I am not merely at the mercy of history's pendulum. I can look for what is real, for what is true, for what is beyond current viral polarizations. As Chesterton says, it is not good enough to merely criticize the world, to merely oppose the opposition. We need to have an ideal to work towards, and only forgiveness will free us sufficiently to allow us to be able to look for such an ideal. Christians especially should remember that Jesus was born into a slave nation, and his political stance was surprisingly different from both the status quo of the state and the revolutionary opposition. He was neither for the Romans nor for Maccabean revolution. He clearly had an ideal which transcended the viral structure of what was prevalent in his day. He gave this ideal a name. He called it the kingdom of God. Our best shot at getting past the polarizations of our time, and I think this should be the aim, is to figure out what this kingdom is about. And it is likely to offend many of our political inclinations. For what it's worth, I'm going to recommend some books that I've found helpful as I've tried to figure out what a kingdom of God politics looks like. I find Adrian Pabst's The Demons of Liberal Democracy a thrilling proposal, very fascinating book. It um, offers an outline of various current political problems, but it also has some quite amazing ideas for what a better political system would look like. And amazingly, the ideas there are not totally outlandishly idealistic, they are rooted in a realistic ontology. Pubst's book borrows a great deal from his work with John Milbank in their astounding book, The Politics of Virtue, which is a much more difficult read, um, but I think very worthwhile reading. Fred Dahlmeier's book on post-liberalism is also excellent. This year I read P Pierre Manent's Natural Law and Human Rights Towards a Recovery of Practical Reason, which I found riveting and utterly compelling. And Remy Bragg's book Curing Mad Truths is great for just understanding a bit of how the modern project has informed some of our ideas now. Um, the situation we are in now globally with politics is rooted in very old um, ideas that started in basically in the beginning of mod modernity. I'm a big fan of New Polity just for its very bold political project and I would say that the political thinker William Kavanagh has some marvelous thinking on political questions. 
As these recommendations will indicate, I think a post-liberal option will serve us better than any form of liberalism, whether left or right-wing. In essence, I think we need to recover a sense of the common good before we can find a common future. We need to recover a gift exchange politics rather than one that sees everything in terms of rivalry and envy. And as I'm sure you can tell by now, whatever our common future is, if it is to be in any way livable, it cannot be rooted in the unreality 